Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to another brand new episode of A Stab in the Dark, the alibi podcast that investigates the worlds of crime fiction and TV crime drama that sucks diesel, smells bent coppers from a hundred paces, floats up the Largan in a bubble without a care in the world, then embarks on an interrogation scene that makes lockdown look like a catnap. Yes, in this episode, we're joined by the creator of Britain's top-rated cop show, Line of Duty. Over a career that has spanned more than 25 years, he's proved himself to be one of the boldest and most innovative people working in television today. Yes, indeed, my guest this week is none other than the brilliant Jed Mercurio. My name's Mark Billingham. And welcome to A Stab in the Dark. Jed, hello. Welcome to A Stab in the Dark. Hi, Mark. Great to be on. How are you getting on in lockdown? Okay. I think that um, you might say that for writers, we probably haven't even noticed. Um, I mean, from the TV side of things, there was the big upheaval of having to stop production. And for people who are actors people who are on crews that's been incredibly disruptive and potentially has has thrown them into quite considerable hardship but I'm kind of one of those who can count his blessings I've switched to to development work and to writing and I'm in an indefinite holding pattern until we can get back to the shoot now before we get stuck into the incredible success of line of duty I want to go back to the beginning because you've had an extraordinary career you started off studying medicine then working as a pilot officer in the RAF, and then began writing what was to become the BBC series Cardiac Arrest under the name John McCure. Why the pseudonym? I was working as a doctor in the NHS at the time, and I was also in the Royal Air Force. So it was just felt that if there was any comeback about what I was writing about, that it, it might be helpful in terms of confidentiality, particularly because um, there might have been patients who or their relatives who became concerned that certain stories that were being portrayed on screen had any kind of relationship to theirs, which wasn't true. I I certainly didn't do that. But it it was something that the the hospital where I worked was conscious about. So there's this career planned out, medicine, you know, the the, the Air Force, all that stuff. What had you always written? Was there always a writing impulse? No, not at all, Mark. I mean, I I was a sciencey nerdy kid. I just went to an ordinary comp in the West Midlands. There wasn't really much opportunity to do creative writing. I did English O-level, but then I did science A-levels. And it was really about sort of getting into gainful employment, getting into one of the professions. I'd always been interested in medicine uh, and science. And then uh, when I went to medical school, I kind of thought about um, medical specialisation, which took me towards aviation medicine. And that prompted me to join the Air Force, and then I started learning to fly. And so I, I, I certainly did have a career path that I was, was very engaged with. Uh, but unfortunately, the, the Cold War ended. And um, rather than the, the great powers of the world investing in, in the armed forces and air power, 
they decided that they would do something different. So people like me didn't really have the opportunities we had before. So the programme I was part of got cut. And I was kind of trying to figure out what to do with my life when this opportunity to to write for TV came up. So do you think if that hadn't happened, you know, the, the programme you were on being cut, do you think you might have carried on down that sort of medical military path? I think almost certainly, yeah. I mean, I, I really loved what I was doing. I was very excited by the opportunities and... I enjoyed the the medicine. I enjoyed the the scientific research, which is kind of like aviation physiology. Fundamentally, the stresses and strains on on air crew of um, military flying, flying fast jets, high altitude flying, and so on, uh, and also the flying itself. You know, I I uh, got my preliminary flying badge. I was I'd done about one hundred and fifty hours of flying with the air force. I'd had the opportunity to fly about 20 hours on fast jets. So I, I really loved that world. So how far down this new career path were you before you went, this was a good move? Yeah, this is what I'm going to do from now on. It was something that kind of crept up on me, Mark, because I, I didn't make the leap out of the, the day job for quite a long time. I uh, carried on working in the NHS. I was a senior house officer in, in the West Midlands. Um, on on a training rotation, had a very secure job, and then I got involved in writing the the scripts for the series Cardiac Arrest, and carried on working as a doctor. And then when it got recommissioned, I took a short sabbatical so I could be present during filming to act as the medical advisor. And uh, the plan was always that I would then go back and pick up where I left off, but actually. Before we delivered the second series, the BBC commissioned a third series and I immediately had to get involved in writing again, which I did and carried on doing medicine as, as best I could. And then it just became impossible. I, I had to um, give up working as a doctor so that I could concentrate full time. Uh, and I thought, well, you know, once this little adventure comes to an end, then I'll, I'll just go back to where I was. But I've just been very fortunate. I can always fall back on the flying. <laughs> yeah, I was just very fortunate that thing that things took off for me with with the writing, and it it became the thing that that really excited me, and and I just loved working in TV. I loved writing, and you know I'd never anticipated that I would get that kind of opportunity. So you then go on to create bodies, and then you then a show called The Grimleys, which I loved. I show I remember hugely fondly, largely because it's set in my part of the world. Um, but, uh, you know, did, so to go from these kind of powerful medical dramas uh, to comedy, would, had there always been a comedic instinct in, in the stuff you were writing? Was it something you were keen to get into? It was actually something that was present in Cardiac Arrest, the, the first thing I did. There was, there was um, an element of getting the, the camaraderie and the... The, the the japes that junior doctors get up to the sort of gallows humor yeah the black of humor, that yeah. particular uh, life you know and and um as the series went on it became more and more uh focusing on the the drama and i and there were a lot of things i wanted to do comedically with the series that just weren't appropriate and i kind of set those aside so when that series ended i i kind of really felt that i had all this kind of um, stored away in my bottom drawer and wanted to, to come up with a vehicle for it. So The Grimleys was, was something that I loved working on. It's the only comedy I've ever done. 
it was great fun. It was it was kind of nostalgic for the Midlands, you know. Although we shot it in Manchester because that's the uh, it was a Granada production. Um, it was very much set in the Midlands, and it was very much about the black country. Really, it was set in Dudley. I grew up in Cannock, which is just a few miles uh, away on the edge of the black country. Um, I went to university in Birmingham. Um, I know you're from Birmingham as well. I went to so, University of Birmingham as well. I think I think a bit before you. I think just a bit. Oh well, you're being very kind. Um, <laughs> no one, no one could tell. Um, and uh, yeah, I just felt that it was so, it was kind of underrepresented on TV as a region yeah, and still right. is. Yeah, no, absolutely. But one of the things I love about about that show, I mean, a great sort of central cast in terms of the sort of family and the and the neighbours and stuff, but then in little sort of minor roles, this incredible fun you must have had with casting because you've got, you know, Ron Atkinson as a sort of rubbishy football manager and uh, Stephen Lewis out of On the Buses as a coach driver and the legend that is Noddy Holder as the music teacher. Yeah, I mean, that was always part of it, having fun with these cameos. So when, when we started the series, we had uh, Brian, Brian Conley was the lead as the PE teacher. And Amanda Holden, in, in her first lead, uh, was the English teacher. And we kind of created these sort of walk-on roles for people who maybe had some connection with the Midlands, had some connection with the 70s. Uh, and Noddy was someone who came in right at the beginning, who we cast really as a cameo as a as, as the music teacher but actually we really saw that there was a, an opportunity for that to become a regular part and noddy was fantastic he's such a such a nice guy and uh you know he's done it all he's he's, he's been famous for such a long time and absolutely has no kind of uh, airs and graces is really down to earth so we all loved working with noddy and so that part got bigger and bigger as the series went on Oh, he's a legend. He is just a, such such a fan of Slade. And the bizarre... Did you know about the bizarre crime connection with Slade? The bizarre thing that happened with Slade 2? This is long after Noddy left. Uh, and, you know, kudos to him for always refusing to get back on the road and do all that nostalgia stuff. But they, the band were on the road and they had another guitarist, not Dave Hill, but another guitarist, who then one day announced he's in, that he was getting engaged to the rest of the band. And he got engaged to Rosemary West... While she was oh. still in prison, it's somebody needs to write about this. It sounds like so unbelievable and made up, but it's absolutely true. The guitarist that Slade to got engaged to Rose West. That's extraordinary, isn't it? Isn't it extraordinary? I just don't. I to be honest, I don't. I don't see it. I I can't see what he saw in her. To be no. honest, <laughs> no. I know that's a bit harsh, maybe. <laughs> anyway, so we have we have we have gone off on a tangent. Um, so you had plenty of TV experience before uh, 2012, first series of Line of Duty. Now, even though you're a very experienced writer by this time, I'm guessing you could have had no idea that it was going to you know, turn out to be this, this huge success that it did. Um, so just take us back to that time. How did the sort of premise come about? Where, you know, how did you get involved in, in creating Line of Duty? Well, I'd never written crime and I'd never actually written a thriller. I, I tended to stick to... Uh, writing about medicine, writing about medicine as an institution. And I was just getting to the point where really I was quite a long way out of medicine and felt that I didn't have anything more to say that was that was relevant. But I do follow current affairs. I'm, I read the newspapers, I watch the TV news, and I was becoming more and more interested in what was happening in policing. So 
what I pitched originally was something that was an examination of 21st century policing as an institution. And we started working together on a way into that. And, and one of the things that's, that's quite laudable about the police is, is that they have anti-corruption units. They do attempt to root out wrongdoing in their organisation, which, to be honest, if you compare to most British institutions, is pretty unique. Yeah. Most British institutions are absolutely terrible at, at finding wrongdoing in their own organisations. So we felt that that was a good vehicle for it. And uh, the initial conversations were with uh, Tony Garnett, who has a fantastic track record of um, TV production, going all the way back to Cathy uh, Come Home. But he dealt with police corruption in uh, a couple of very notable productions, a Law and Order series, and then Between the Lines. And so Tony was someone who really inspired all of us who were involved in developing the series to think that it was very timely to look at policing really sort of 20 years after Between the Lines had looked at police corruption because so much had changed. Of course, within, within, uh, within the police force itself, there's often an awful lot of resentment about the coppers that investigate other coppers, you know, the rubber healers or whatever, whatever cops call them these days. But what you, what you did really cleverly, it seems to me, was to create characters who, within their own world, if you like, are almost villains. Because, do you see what I mean? They're, they're not yeah. popular, but they're actually... They're a gang of heroes. They're a little triumvirate of heroes, aren't they? Well, that was the assumption I'd made about how the police would, would regard anti-corruption officers... But that just came from other uh, other dramas. So I, I kind of felt that I needed to do some primary research. So I was lucky enough to speak to a detective inspector who worked in anti-corruption on the Met. And he confirmed that that was the case, that, that um, there was a great deal of resentment from rank-and-file officers. And, and one of the things they were quite resentful of was the fact that anti-corruption became a, a job that, ambitious officers needed to do to be able to get to the top right. but in the past going into anti-corruption was a bit of a dead end whereas it was becoming something that was that that needed to be ticked off in terms of the um the career path for people en route to be executive officers um and it unfortunately we weren't able to use him as a consultant he was very keen to get involved and then his bosses said no so that was kind of the limit of how much primary research we were able to do with Series 1. Things changed after it went out. We were able to, to get serving police officers to help us with our stories as we went from Series 2 onwards. But before then, I think there was a great deal of concern about the sensitivity of portraying anti-corruption operations. Well, certainly as, as the years have gone on, it, it seems... It, it seems more timely, if you like, with every series that comes along. And it did strike me as I was sort of thinking about this interview, uh, that looking at the sort of the microscope that, for example, American policing is under right now. And I did wonder, it just made me wonder, has there ever been any interest in making a US version of Line of Duty? Because right now that would just be hot as hell. That there has over the years. I, I think that in, if you look at the American television market, it is so much larger than ours and there are so many more people pitching ideas that the idea of something set in what they call internal affairs has been pitched repeatedly. It's not something that, that hasn't been 
explored in pilots and and by by writers who really know that world it's just that there hasn't been a successful series so it, it does still feel like that that ground is there to be won with with the right approach but um i think in terms of the discussions with the american market it has always been that they would prefer a homegrown thing rather than a yeah. version of a british series well you've at the heart of every series apart from the the three main characters that we'll talk about later uh there's a kind of a, a guest star if you like a flawed a flawed character right from you know usually somebody very recognizable you know, lenny james keely hawes tandy newton Daniel Mays, was that always part of the plan from series one? Actually, it was, yeah, Mark. One, one of the things that we were looking at when we developed the architecture of the series was how to make it returnable. Because in TV, as you know, if, if you can have the possibility of further series, then it makes a broadcaster much more um, switched on to the, the, the commercial attractions of, of a work. So series one appeared to be like a mini series that it was it, it appeared to be closed ended but what we explained to to the BBC was that we'd built in the possibility that the investigators would come back in in a second or subsequent seasons and they would investigate a whole new case which was um built around an, a a guest star in the way that Lenny James was the lead in series 1 we were actually treating him as being a guest star and so we, uh, we optioned the uh, anti-corruption officers, uh, the, the cast playing the anti-corruption officers to come back for, for the next season. And then we set about thinking about who we wanted to bring in and what that character would be. Um, and I think that it was something that was well understood by the broadcaster and by people working on the series. But it probably wasn't until about series three that I think the audience latched on to how it worked. Yeah. Well the, well, the other thing that you've sort of never been afraid to do is to perhaps kill off main characters uh, when they need to be killed off uh, and and to be surprising in that way that uh, a lot of the core cast, I think, have said that they've got no idea quite often, you know, where it's going to... Do you like to keep your cast on their toes? I mean, is that important to keep everybody surprised? It's much more about... Um, what's in the best interests of the series? I think everybody who works on it know that we're in a very fortunate and privileged position to have the the size of audience we do to to have a, a series on air that's talked about so much. So we we really value the position we have, and we wouldn't want to do anything to, to kind of mess with that to to end up sort of becoming formulaic or or um, resting on our laurels. So. Everybody understands that if the story um, went into certain places, if it went in certain directions, then it may be just the best narrative device for someone to meet a sticky end. And everybody's cut, signed up to that and everybody understands that in a very professional way. But what about, what about the pressure, Jed? I mean, when, when you're behind this, what has become, you know, in television terms, just this juggernaut, this hugely successful show... I mean, the pressure series on series to keep delivering the goods must just must just increase incrementally, you know. Um, well, I don't regard it as pressure. I think failure is pressure. I, I think I think that success is something that uh, we all really love having. We feel very privileged that we've got this loyal following. We've got incredible support from the broadcaster as well, which which is something that it can't, can't be underestimated. I've, I've worked in television 
long enough to know that there are times when a broadcaster really doesn't support a series as much as the the the, the viewers do and and some of the things that I've been involved with haven't really had the platform that that maybe they deserved because the broadcaster for whatever internal reason didn't get behind them so the fact is that we have that support from the BBC which allows us to work in a in a really great creative environment we can explore new ideas we can look at pushing the boundaries of what we do we can break new ground and we and we do that in in a way that is really just designed to keep the series moving forward to keep the series fresh and and to find new stories and, and new themes to explore i mean how many how many series we'll talk about series six and where we where, where you are with series six in the second half but how how many series are you think i mean how far ahead are you thinking i don't think very far ahead in terms of actually plotting out but um since uh series two finished we've always had conversations with the bbc about how how far ahead they were prepared to commission the series. So uh, series three was commissioned with a series four already in the bag, which meant we knew that, that series three didn't have to be the last. And we've carried on that way um, really up until series six, where we always knew there was the possibility of another series. And that's become increasingly important because of the meta-narrative, the overall arc where there are so many loose ends. What we don't want to do is have a loyal audience left hanging and frustrated because the series doesn't get recommissioned and there are lots of unanswered questions which we've never had the opportunity to address. So do, do you know where that overall arc is going? Even though yes. you, might, you, know, you might not have the specific storylines for season seven or whatever it might be, you know, you know that arc, that journey. I, I know the basics of it, yes. But in terms of how we actually get there episode by episode, that's something that I leave until we actually get into script development on the given series. Okay. Well, we will be talking more to the brilliant Jed Mercurio after the break. But now we've reached that time in the programme when we find out what our man with the spyglass, our roving reporter, Paul Hirons, has been up to. Paul, what's happening out there? Yes, thank you, Mark. Now, earlier on this year, I was offered the chance to interview one of the cast members from a series that many still argue is the greatest drama show in any genre of them all. The Sopranos ran for six incredible series from 1999 to 2007 and to celebrate their 20th anniversary, members of the cast were planning to come over this year and mark the occasion with a tour that would take in venues up and down the UK. Unfortunately, the lockdown then happened and obviously the tour wasn't possible. Now, I was tasked with chatting to Vincent Pastore who played Big Pussy Bomponsero but a word of warning, just before I was due to speak to Vincent, I realised that my dictaphone had run out of battery and incredibly and embarrassingly, there were none left in the house. So I had to run to the shops, run back up four flights of stairs and telephone him straight away. I mean, I didn't want to mess him around because, you know, he's big pussy bomponsero and I might find a horse's head in my bed the morning after. The point is, if you hear me slightly out of breath on this call, then... Well, that's what I was. I was knackered. So here is Vincent Pastore. Vincent, welcome. The Sopranos is such uh, an iconic show and it has celebrated its 20th anniversary recently. Does it still surprise you that people from all over the world 
love it so much? It surprises me, but uh, like anything that's good and that lasts, like um, some of our classic television shows and movies, uh, there's always a generation that sees it for the first time and they want to know about the making of and, you know, all this history. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm glad uh, to be a part of, uh, you know, television history. So did you get a sense of how big it was outside of the U.S.? We were in Italy doing um, the uh, the episode where Tony goes over to Italy and he brings back uh, Furio. And I went over with them. Uh, David brought me over. And me and Tony Sirico were on um, the Isle of Capri. And some people came up to us from London and they recognized us and yeah. we were like in awe. So I guess I need to ask you, why do you think it struck a chord with the wider global population? People always like to watch the gangster movies. And way back with Cagney and Bogart and George Raft, and then The Godfather. Then you had Goodfellas. You know, they always wanted to see that stuff. To see it on television once a week was a treat. But what it did, uh, what it did, it showed... Uh, uh, the, the 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 other side of of these wise guys, their family life, like Tony with his kids, his relationship with the guys, and and and, it, and you know they like the ads were saying there's family and then this family. That's how they were promoting it, you know, because he he had his family uh, with um, with with you know Edie Falco and Jamie Lynn and Robert Isla, and then he had his family with us, and. Um, there was a crossover. You remember the episode College? He takes his daughter to go look for colleges and he winds up killing somebody. So it was like, okay, well, this is how these people are. And um, and it was rich. And we had um, so many different characters that people were getting interested in. You know, if you watch uh, Paulie Walnuts in the first episode, he had one line. And then in the second episode, they paired him up with me all the time, with mm -hmm. my character. And we went out looking for the stolen car, and we mm. did this, and we did that. It was unique. Now, we can't talk about The Sopranos without speaking about the late, great James Gandolfini. Tell us a little bit about James and what he brought to the role. Well, Jimmy wanted to try to separate himself from being Tony Soprano. He used to get very upset when he would walk in on the street and well, he was riding around the city on his moped, what people would call him Tony. Uh... That was a character he played. But it was hard for the public to separate that because they saw him every Sunday night in their living room as Tony Soprano. And Jimmy was not uh, a known actor. He was in Crimson Tide. He was in uh, True Romance. He was in a few movies prior to that. But Sopranos is what really launched his career. And uh, it was hard for Jimmy to separate all that stuff. But once he got to the set, you know, it's like, okay, run our scene, let's let's do a good job. We don't go home until it's done right. You know, he was committed. And uh, when we would go out on our Soprano tours, like what we're doing when we come, Michael and Steven are coming to you guys, we would do a lot of them. We used to do a lot of them in Atlantic City. We were... We were friends hanging out, mm. enjoying uh, uh, what we, you know, all, the, all these benefits, you know. But Jimmy was a regular guy, a regular guy. And I'm telling you, uh, I saw his work on Broadway. Um, I saw a lot of films that he had done. Uh, 
Pryor and Doran mm-hmm. reign on the Sopranos, and I tell people he could, he could, he, Jimmy could have become another Marlon Brando. So what about that ending? It it was one of the most contentious and ambiguous, I think, in TV history. No one really knew whether Tony sitting in that restaurant with his family around him was dead or alive or was someone coming in to take him out. Uh, what's your take on it? Everybody has their own interpretation, and uh, uh, when you you talk to David, one day he says one thing, and another day he says another thing. So I don't think he made up his mind. They had alternate endings, and they used that one. I really feel, I really feel that they did that to keep the show open and curious. Who comes into a restaurant and kills a guy in front of his kid? So it was all the tension, all of that, and then Boma goes to black, and um. I remember one night, one, one, one afternoon, uh, little Stephen's mother passed away, and after the funeral, we all went to dinner, and David was sitting with me and Jimmy and Tony, Max Weinberg and Tony Sirico, and, uh, and we, you know, we were sitting there, and little Stephen and David said to Jimmy, are you ready to get back to work? They had plans of doing something again. Jimmy looked at David and said, is Vinny coming back? And David said, well, you know, I got rid of him too, so we could probably fix this. But uh, they had intentions. Well, a big thanks to Vincent there. And the good news is that Vincent, Michael Imperioli and Steve Sharipa will be back in the UK next year for some rearranged dates. And there's more good news. Some tickets are still available. Simply go to facebook.com forward slash Sopranos tour or search via bookingsdirect.com. And with that, it's a bada-bing, bada-boom, and back to you and Jed, Mark. Thanks, Paul. We are back with award-winning screenwriter and showrunner Jed Mercurio. Um, so, Jed, what we haven't really talked about yet is the is the sort of trio of, of characters at the heart of Line of Duty, who are such uh, an enduring key part of the show. Um, so with all the, the, the guest stars that come in and out and the, the twists and turns of the storylines, how important is it to have that sort of triumvirate at the, at the heart of the show? Well, the, the three regular characters, uh, Ted, Ted Hastings, Steve Arnott and Kate Fleming, are absolutely the bedrock of the series. When we started with series one, uh, we brought them in. I'd never worked with, with any of them before, but they really hit it off with each other and, and I really respected what they were doing as actors and when they came back for the second series by then we'd all kind of bonded in the way you do when you know you're working on something that's successful so I often think of the four of us as being the the creative partnership on screen we we hang out a lot together when we're shooting we talk a lot about the script we talk a lot about their characters and their character arcs and between series we converse quite a lot and share ideas and and they're not they're not backward in coming forward to say <laughs> in in the next series can my character do x y or z okay um, and, and that's really great you know as a, as a writer often you kind of work on your own uh you're you're taking sole responsibility for the the storylining and the character arcs and and although i've got a fantastic editorial team at world productions uh, led by Simon Heath, who's been involved in the series from day one. Um, that particular particular relationship with the the actors is is really an, an incredible and essential collaboration. Have you, has there ever been a moment 
when you know you're you're working on the on the script for something working on the storyline for a series and one of those characters has come close to perhaps not making it all the way through or has, has it been a, has there ever been a moment when you've had a very tough decision to make that happens constantly <laughs> i i have to say that there is that um every major character in the the series has kind of dodged a bullet at some point right in terms of a draft of a script that i i wrote and then had second thoughts about or then came up with a better solution um so the ones where the the series has been made and someone has exited the 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 series uh those are the examples of where it did feel like it was absolutely the best story choice uh and in the best interest of the series so you've not you've never thought of just opening opening episode 1 of a new series with with Arnott's funeral and then just maybe sending that to the actor just just to keep him on his toes for a bit until you go, that's only a first draft, mate. It's fine. Relax. I've changed my mind. We we do sometimes have little gags in the script, which are practical jokes played on okay. on certain cast. Yeah. I mean, it's something I, I've done on other series in the past. And and on this one, we we occasionally do it just for a, for a joke, particularly because there are certain there are certain actors who are maybe easier targets than others in terms of their level of gullibility. Right. Well, there's one character in particular, obviously, who I think if you ever did kill off, they would be rioting in the streets. Never never mind black armbands when Sherlock Holmes was killed off. Uh, we need to talk about Ted. Um, you know, you've got, you know, his catchphrases are up there with, with, with like catchphrases off the fast show or something. You know, people, you know, and there are fan pages and groups on the Internet. Now, aside, aside from being just a brilliant performance by Adrian Dunbar, what is it about that character that has lit, just that people have just taken to their hearts and just engaged with so completely? Oh, I think we have to pay tribute to Adrian. When, when, the, when the character was written for series one, he was iterated in a completely different way. And Adrian came into audition and he just did a fantastic audition that was a completely different approach to who that character was and, and what his his energy would be and his his way of expressing himself and we had a kind of meeting afterwards and decided that having Adrian involved was going to really elevate that character so he was really written uh, completely rewritten from page one and over the years I've got to know Adrian really well and I've got to to learn a little bit of his idiom we shoot over in Belfast which may be uh, a lot of viewers don't realize and so over the years i've i've become very very fond and familiar with with belfast and northern ireland and i i hear that kind of idiom all the time so sometimes i feed it into the script sometimes it's adrian who comes up with with a, a way of saying something and i've encouraged that and the directors encourage that because when you have a, a an experienced and very talented actor like adrian you really trust them to make these important decisions about how their character would behave in certain settings. And in terms of kind of water cooler moments, the the whole is he or is he not H, uh, which you know everybody was was talking about and, and glued to their screens trying to find that out. Was that again uh, something that that you you knew was going to happen fairly early on? Was that there in the arc of the story from the beginning? No, it was something that developed as as we went forward. There was always an idea that that this institutional corruption involving collusion between 
corrupt police officers and organised crime would play out through the series and would become something that was part of the, the examination of police corruption on an institutional level. But it was always regarded that this would be a phantom that we would get closer and closer to through each each season as we as we progress with their investigation. Um, it was just we reached a point where we were looking internally through the character of, of, of Doc Cotton, who was the, the, the character known as the caddy. And that then created the idea that he he obviously didn't work alone. He had connections within the the the, the area of the organization in which he served. And then that then led us to consider what Ted Hastings' role might be in institutionalized corruption. So yeah. it was something that developed organically. But which so in which series is it uh, that that H is first mentioned as uh, H? That series four. Okay, but even, I mean, obviously, back then you're choosing what letter you're gonna <laughs> you're gonna call him, and you know there are people that are gonna go H. Whose name begins with H and start maybe going, oh, God, no, oh, God, no. So you, you knew that was going to be happening and bubbling under, right? It, well, it was something that was, um, again, de- determined organically. We, we wanted to be able to hark back to um, the, the Dot Cotton character, Matthew, D.I. Matthew Cotton, played by Craig Parkinson. And he'd left a dying declaration, which was featured at the end of season three. So that was something that we kind of had in in the locker if we needed it as a story device. And clearly there's any number of clues that he, he might leave in that dying declaration that could point any way we wanted. So what we've done is we, with each season, we went back and recreated that scene and and reshot certain elements of it so that we were always revealing new things to the audience, which then fit with, with where we were in the story in a particular season. So in, in season four, we decided that um, that we wanted to point the finger at uh, a senior police officer whose name was Hilton, but because of the, um, the potential confusion and misdirection that would arise, um, we could we would use the initial H, so therefore we we created an intrigue around that, which then we've been able to use going forward. Well, I mentioned I mentioned the fans talking, and the fans are talking all the time. But you also you also talk to the fans. You're very engaged with with uh, fans of the show and things like Twitter, and you're dropping little clues, maybe little red herrings here and there on social media. Do you enjoy that interaction? Oh, very much, yeah. Like, like I said earlier, I, I think that we, we really feel very fortunate and privileged to have the success that we do. And, and I know everybody involved in Line of Duty feels the same way. And we really um, pay tribute to our fans. We're so grateful that, that people come to the show season after season and they put it top of the ratings. And that's something that you... you, you you don't you don't expect you know when you're writing something as you know you never have any idea how it's received you do the best work you can you you learn your craft you 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 work as hard as you possibly can on it but then there's the the democracy of what the response is and so we're we're all really very touched and and thrilled by the way people respond so any opportunity to interact with fans and express in and express that 
gratitude is something that we seize upon. Well, we can't talk about Line of Duty without talking about those incredible kind of interrogation scenes, which are very much part and parcel of the show. Um, but just I wonder if you could just talk our listeners through one of those scenes logistically. I mean, apart from being a you know, huge feat of, uh, of writing and acting and direction stuff, just just the logistics of it in terms of how long the takes are and how I mean, to take a classic interrogation scene, how many days shooting would that be? Well, it depends on the page count, Mark. So when we um, are working on the scripts and we, we tend to look at 10 pages as being the threshold. So something less than 10 pages is something that we can shoot in a standard way. And you roughly calculate that one one page is about a minute of screen time. So a 10-minute scene is a long scene for TV, but it's manageable. If we go above 10 pages, and some of our interview scenes have been 20 or 30 pages long, then we need to uh, invoke special measures because we need to give the actors time to learn the scene. So we have to schedule it in a way that it's not surrounded by other complex dialogue scenes. So the actors who maybe are working in the preceding days don't maybe have no dialogue at all or they only have one or two lines to say. And they can they can be working on their own private rehearsal to get word perfect on the scenes. Then we do uh, a rehearsal the night before. Uh, and that's really about the logistics of all the graphics. So the actors know when they're looking in the document folders or when they're calling up images on the, the monitor screen, they know exactly what they're going to be looking at and in what order. And that's an opportunity for them to write down any prompts they need about what they're actually going to see and, and to, to be part of their, their, their learning process. Uh, and then we get in, into the shoot the next day. So what we ideally like to be able to do is shoot a whole take. So we don't break the scene down into parts. It starts with the first line and it goes all the way to the end in one take. So that can be a 20 or 25 minute take with with three cameras running. Wow. And when we're doing that, we, we have more cameras than we normally have because it just takes so long to get through the day if we have to do multiple takes. Uh, we also have um, people on standby to prompt the actors if, if for whatever reason they, they can't quite recall the line uh, that they're about to say. Um, and also we try and build in rest, rest periods for the cast so they can just get away and clear their heads, get a bit of fresh air before they come back in because it's recorded in, in the interview room, which is kind of like a glass box. It gets very warm in there. You've got a lot of crew packed around them with, if you've got three camera crews working plus the sound recording. So it, it, it's a kind of a, a level up from normal television filming. Yeah, special measures. That's, that's, I'm going to take that phrase away. <laughs> that's a scene that required special measures. Um, so where are we now with, with, with season six of Line of Duty? And I know that you'd begun filming before lockdown. Uh, is there any idea about when you might be able to start again, in going even further forward than that, when we might expect to see it? Well, we shot for four weeks before we were forced to, to reach the conclusion that it wasn't safe to carry on. So we shut down nine days before the government lockdown. Um, and we're, we're having talks currently with 
the, the BBC and the production company to determine when we might be able to resume. The, the, there are a number of issues still to be resolved on an industry-wide basis, things like insurance and finance and social distancing guidelines that specifically apply to filming. So there are people working on, on those, some involve the, 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 the unions, some involve um, the, uh, the producers' bodies, some involve the broadcasters, some involve the Department of Culture, Media and Sport. And eventually there will be a set of guidelines that apply to, to high, so-called high-end TV. Um, we are hoping that we could get the series shot before the end of this calendar year if all those, if, if all those measures are reached which allow us to film in the way that we need to be able to do. Uh, but the thing that's out of our control is uh, what's happening with coronavirus in the community. If the disease is still rampant, uh, there's absolutely no way that we have the money or resources to quarantine hundreds of people for the duration of the shoot. So there is the risk that, that we import the virus through natural contact between um, crew members going, going back into their households at the end of the day or any contact with, with extras who are on set for a day or supporting artists who are in for a few days. It's really hard to know. Uh, and like any industry, we're kind of hostages to fortune. Well, while, while we're waiting, Jed, and we're waiting with, with bated breath, is there anything you can tell us about Series 6? Anything at all? Just a little hint? Um, well, the, we, we have Kelly MacDonald, who okay. plays uh, DCI Joanne Davidson, who is a senior investigating officer on a murder investigation team. And she is investigating an unsolved high-profile murder case. Um, and her handling of the case uh, creates question marks which bring AC-12 in, the anti-corruption unit, to look at whether the, um, the the case is being mishandled or misdirected. Okay. Oh, well, that's, that should be enough to whet people's appetites. Um, we haven't even talked. We're running out of time. We haven't even spoken about body, Bodyguard, um, which came out, you know, another massive, massive hit show. And... You know, you, you look at both these shows and they have this, uh, obviously they have a lot of, you know, there's, there's DNA running through both of them and that's, that's yours, I guess. Uh, but they both are just so incredibly uh, watchable, hugely popular, constantly talked about. What, what do you think that it factor is? You know, is it, is it nothing more complicated than a great storyline and characters people can engage with? Is it, is it really that simple or is there something else? Or do you not want to even try to define it in case it goes away? <laughs> I think those things are actually hard to define. I, I, I think that you can't underestimate the, uh, the boost that Bodyguard got from the success of Line of Duty. You know, because it, it was um, uh, promoted as being from the makers of Line of Duty, there was a certain level of, of, of expectation and a certain profile that the series got because of that. Um, then I think um, we were just very fortunate with the scheduling. Um, and I know that sounds like it might be a minor thing, but it's really, really not. What the weather was like that night it, it premiered, what was on on the other side, and, and all things like that come, come in. And we just were incredibly fortunate that we kind of hit the ground running 
and then our second episode went out the the following night. It was a bank holiday weekend where the weather was atrocious and lots of people stayed in. So we just got a head of steam that meant people within two nights were invested in the story and the characters. Um, and you know you've got a you've also got to look at the casting. Yeah. Keely was fantastic and she has a following and R- Richard Madden was someone who was maybe less well known to the mainstream audience but then that gave him uh, a, a, a quality that an enigmatic quality that we needed and you know there's, there was a certain chemistry between those actors that came over on screen um, you know it, it goes on a lot of it is really about trying to to deliver on audience expectations if it's something's a thriller make it thrilling i know it sounds really basic but you know put actual jeopardy in it make the stakes high make the audience fear for what's going to happen next things like that which are you know those are things that we all try to do and we we all who have some success in this industry succeed more often than we than we fail in doing doing those things but it really is about kind of giving the audience what they want in a way that maybe they don't expect. Well, that um, that first 20 minutes of the first episode of Bodyguard on, you know, that certainly did that. But I love those little, wow, these little, the nuts and bolts of the actual process in that, you know, I've now, I now have this image of when, you know, a big new, uh, hugely anticipated show is coming out and millions have been spent. And, you know, on the day, all the programme makers and the TV executives are, are looking at the weather forecast, just going, please piss down, for God's sake, please. <laughs> uh, you know, you don't know all that stuff is involved. Um, we also know that you've been setting up your own production company and the first fruit to that, I think, is this, this BBC crime drama Bloodlands. Can you tell us anything about that? Yeah, so uh, that's right. So uh, HTM Television is a joint venture between me and Hattrick Productions, who are a very well-established uh, independent production company. Um, Bloodlands is written by uh, a newcomer, Chris Brandon. He's, uh, he's written episodes of TV before, but he's never created his own series. And he grew up in Northern Ireland and he's written a, a contemporary police thriller set in Northern Ireland uh, with one foot in, in the past, one foot in, the, in uh, some unsolved crimes from the, the tail end of the Troubles, just before the Good Friday Agreement, and uh, one foot in the present. And the, the protagonist is uh, Detective Chief Inspector Tom Brannock of the PSNI, who's played by James Nesbitt. Um, and uh, that is something that we are still in post-production on. We were incredibly fortunate to wrap filming just before the production shutdown hit the the industry. Uh, We're um, hoping to complete post-production by the end of the summer, so it would then be available to be on BBC One any time from the autumn onwards. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Um, well, we can't wait to see all these shows, Jed. Now, before we let our guests go, just to spring this on you, we, are, we ask uh, each of our guests, I think, gives a recommendation for something they've, they've seen on TV or something that's available on TV and something they've read. Anything you've seen on TV recently you'd recommend? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to plump for Devs, which right. was uh, a series uh, on FX, which was um, on BBC Two over here, which was... Um, written and directed by Alex Garland, uh, the the author of The Beach, who then did the Twenty Eight Days Later movie, and then did a movie called Ex Machina. Um, it's an eight hour 
serial. It's uh, I would call it a thriller. It's a it's what I would call a kind of uh, a scientific thriller. Uh, it's very thought provoking. It's beautifully made, beautifully acted, and I found it enthralling. What's the name of the actor? It's got the guy. It's got the guy out of Parks and Rec, hasn't it? Ron Swanson out of Parks and Rec is the main guy in it, but I can't think of his name. He looks very different in it. I Nick seeing Offerman. Trade. Nick Offerman. Yeah. What about yeah, something? He's, he's terrific in it. He, so it, Nick Offerman plays um, a, a, a tech entrepreneur who is head of one of those um, those giant um, Silicon Valley corporations. And uh, what about something to read, Jed? You know what I'm going to go for. I'm going to go for something that that's quite old that I reread recently, which was Day of the Jackal. I uh, I. I Rewatched the movie and I re and I reread the book, and it, it's one of those things that the detail in it and the the relentlessness of the of of quite a simple story ends up being riveting. Yeah. Um. So that's kind of a blast from the past. Um. In terms of other stuff, I'm trying to think of something that's a bit more recent. Um. Day of the Jackal is a fi- is a fine recommendation. You don't need to go any further than that. I mean, that's a that's a masterclass in how to make something a story of, of which you know the end. You know, you you kind of yeah. know you know what what's going to happen and what's not going to happen, but it's still incredibly tense. I mean, it's uh, it's also it, the fact that it, it feels like it's got one foot in reality. That that yeah. the uh, you know without going into too much detail, that the opening of the novel co- covers ground that that. Um, uh, is historical fact that that de Gaulle was the subject of numerous assassination attempts, and so the beginning of the novel is is recounting a real assassination attempt against President de Gaulle, and then in the aftermath of that, it jumps into the fictional story. But the way it's written makes it feel like this could actually have really happened. That yeah. you don't really know whether you're reading uh, uh, something that's based on secret research of a story that was covered up. And that ends up being, being a very effective device in the book. And I think, I think I'm right in saying famously written in an incredibly short period of time, like he wrote it in three weeks or something. Some, I read some story somewhere that he just locked himself away and just... Yeah, well, you, you and I around. know how we react when we hear things like <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, just, I want to be sick. It actually makes me <laughs> want to be sick or just f- seek him out and slap him. But, you know. uh, oh, no, I was just going to say, I just assumed they're lying. <laughs> OK, yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll go with that. We'll go with that. Yeah, let's just um, go with that. <laughs> well, there we go. A huge thanks to Jed Mercurio for joining us on the latest episode of A Stab in the Dark. You can watch all the best crime drama on Alibi, which is available on Sky, Virgin Media, BT and Talk Talk. And because this is the last episode of the series, I'd urge you to follow Alibi on Twitter at Alibi underscore channel and across social media to find out what the channel has in store in the autumn and winter. Look out for some brand new crime series coming your way soon. And finally, obviously, if you've enjoyed this podcast, then you know what I'm going to say. Please remember to review, rate and subscribe. It really does make a huge difference to us and to the future of the podcast. If you don't, well, put it this way. I've not just got H on speed dial. I've got lots of other very scary people known only by letters of the alphabet. You don't want to upset F, I can promise you that. And you really don't want P in your face. A special thanks to our producers, Paul Hirons and Joel Porter. My name's Mark Billingham and thanks for listening. <laughs>